Everybody, and guess what? Happy New Year. Yes, it is my first podcast in three weeks. I feel out of, I feel like I got to get my podcast chops back. <laughs> it's three weeks. I can't <laughs> believe it. And it is the new year, 2021. Last year was Crapola. And, you know, a lot of the crapola has carried into 2021, but we have to be hopeful. And hopefully, all the crapola will just, you know, cease to. Be that crappy soon. <laughs> but I want you all to be happy, healthy, <laughs> safe. So happy new year to you all. And today I have a wonderful guest. He is author and producer and, you know, Renaissance man, we'll call him Chris Corman. And he wrote a wonderful book. Tell us the name, Chris. Oh my God, it's Harvey Corman's son. Oh my God, you're Harvey Corman's son. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes, well, somebody <laughs> had to be. Yes, I would hate. For, I would hate for all that cross dressing to go to waste. I mean, really, seriously. I don't really so, remember him cross dressing. He well, he, he you know he played the Mother Marcus role on the, the Jewish grandmother on Burnett's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. turn. <laughs> now that is autobiographical because that was basically, in essence, Sam's the boob. Boobs in the hair. That was basically his mother. Oh my! So I mean, the, the whole Jewish, you know, uh, Lady Kazan, um, uh, Kate Smith, <laughs> Evelyn Merman Luck. That was basically my dad's homage to his mother. I mean, I don't think she was as grandioso as that, but she had that essence about her. I mean, the way my dad talked, the way he walked, was just true. Had, and his. Uh, did you ever meet her? His mom died in 60. So you had uh, never I, met her? I'm, yeah. I, no, I never met her. I, I, I have a picture of her, which I will add to the, you know, if I update my, this book, I will update it with a picture of her. Because no one's ever seen a picture of my dad's mother. I saw ever. a picture of your dad's dad. So why don't you tell everybody, yes. I mean, you have come through so many things. I mean, we're not going to dwell on this. We're going to go more into you and your dad. But you were born with a learning disability, and they caught it quickly, yet you still had problems with it. So can you tell people what it was, what it is, and sure. what it entailed, what exactly well, it gave you problems with? Well, because I, was, I suffered brain damage at birth, um, which is called Highline, H-Y-L-I-E-N-E. Highline memory disease, which is essence is a lack of oxygen to the brain and the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And I was given a seventy-two hour window to live. Oh, swell! So the deal is this: is so, so my hand-eye coordination, gross motor skills, all that was damaged at birth. So I had to relearn those skills. And basically, the clinical diagnosis of an LD is a delay in the learning process. So I delay in. 
and retain information at a slower rate as to say, if you read a textbook, the first page of a textbook, let's just say, Grace, you would read it in a 1.5 second clip. I would read it in an 18.5 clip. There's a 17 second delay is because I'm reading. That doesn't mean I'm comprehending. Right. So I would have to go back and reread, 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 reread something until I understood what it meant. Because you can read a lot of things. It doesn't mean you're comprehending it. True. And, one and so, yes, go on. So, so the retention issue is that um, becomes a challenge. And so I, I didn't learn how to ride a bike till I was probably 10 or 12. I learned how to hit, really hit a baseball until I was much older because the gross motor skills and, 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 the, and, and um, gross motor skills and all those things were damaged. So I had to learn those skills. Gross motor skills, hand-eye coordination um, was difficult most of my life. Um, and so those challenges, and then on top of it, I had just have a speech impediment and I had uh, reconstructed jaw surgery on my jaw when I was 14. Yes. I, I had surgery that. on, I had surgery on my eyes at the Jules Stein Medical Center at UCLA when I was two or so. Oh, wow. Because I've had my battles. Um, but you know, it's funny, my dad always said, well, I, 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 <laughs> Sort of hinted to my father. I said, that if you think the speech impediment and the learning disability was a problem, you know what really kind of curtailed the social development? He said, What? All that cross dressing you did on television, you want to knock that off for a couple of years so I can get you know, my social life back on track? <laughs> he adored you. I love the book because yeah, you two, you can see you. how much you two loved each other and the bond that you had and how proud he was of you. And I, I just loved the book. And I, I thought all the stories you told were great. And by the way, Chris, I did not, I tried to learn to ride a bike when I was five and I didn't, I always fell. So don't feel bad. I still need train wheels. And I'm not kidding. Well, <laughs> and I don't drive either. You. I don't drive. <laughs> no, well, Vegas should be very happy I don't drive because there's enough psychotics and sociopaths on the on the road. We don't need me, too. That's what I said. I'm, um, I'm hell on wheels. I'm a menace. Uh, Lifetime bus pass. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, give me, yeah, give me a big wheel and I, or a golf cart. And all, I'm fine. <laughs> me, too. Um, I'm good in bumper cars. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can do that. But, um, yeah, but let me tell you the key thing for my father in our relationship was he always said to me, and this is a light credo you bestowed upon me early. He said, Chris, the only fail in life is when you don't try. So I can accept you tr- I can accept you struggling. I can accept you failing. But what I cannot accept you is not trying because you might look lesser in my eyes. You look lesser in my eyes when you don't try. Because look what you've accomplished. You're like, you're married, you have a child. Had you not, had you given up on yourself, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what was possible in your life. So don't ever use LD as a crutch for not evolving and growing. I said, well, no, I don't, Dad. I don't blame, I don't blame the LD and the speech impediment. I blame you and your cross-dressing. <laughs> he said, will you stop talking to your mother? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but we have so, to. But no, seriously. He, Go on. He really, he really, honestly, Grace, he really, that was a light career he, he bestowed upon me early. Was, and that is I, the truth. I don't, I can, That's the truth. It is true. And, um, but here's the thing about the LD as far as the, um, my love for theater was he didn't want me to go into do theater because he thought I was being the spotlight. He said, what skill do you struggle with your LD? I said, retention. I said, 
what do you have to do when you do a place if you have to retain information and the dialogue? Right. So use the theater as a template to learn and, and cultivate a skill and retain information. Because you have to purge yourself of new staging one day. The next day you have to learn new, new staging, right? Uh-huh. And you have to learn new lines. So use that as a template, Chris, to cultivate and refine your retention skills. So that's why he had me do theater, yes. not because he thought, oh, I didn't know that, Grace, at the time. That's why he, he pushed me to do theater. It wasn't because he thought, oh, I want another Corman in the limelight. Right. Which was, if you find something in your life that you love to do, you never have to work in a day in your life. So exactly. if you find a, a, a path in your life that lights you up, but do the theater because you really love it. And you, you gain a skill, and you get you learn to get out of the fear of being in front of people. And theater is a very inclusive-based industry. It's about teamwork. It's about compromise. It's about being around other people who don't have your challenges, and you have to elevate your game to meet them. That's where your self-work comes in. That's where you build up, hey, I can engage myself with these other people who do this for a living. And hold my own. And you did at my, first my dad, feel very, uh, yeah. you felt very insecure that, at first, but yeah. you grew into that. Like you, when you went to that first school and your dad um, was asked to do like the golf benefit, which went on yeah. for 13 years, and you would always go, first, I think you were five, right? And they said, we want you to yeah. go up and introduce your father and say something. You were a nervous wreck. You were also only five. And, um, right. but you did fine. And, uh, your mother was terrified, whatever, but you went up there yeah. and you did it. And you did it well, every year after, didn't you? Since I did you it for 22 years. Wow. Uh, my dad, uh, broke off and he, he said he tired of doing the, uh, the bureaucracy of doing it. And, but he said, you know, I moved on to, uh, I co-hosted it with Scott Record. He's a well-known comedian impressionist, and I did it with Wayne Rogers, and I did it with Frankie Avalon. I love Frankie. And I did it with, with Smothers Brothers. I adore Frankie, for a dear, dear person. Um, so I coasted with other years with other subsequent guests, and the, and then the, my dad came back, I think, a year or two later, mm-hmm. and he said, because the reason why I left was you don't really need him anymore. I said, the name is what it is. I said, yes. The name is what it is, right? But it's your name. Like, no, it's your name. People come back, Chris. I, I had Peter Marshall calling me, and all these famous people calling me and saying, are you doing the tournament this year? Like, no, I'm not, but Chris is. Chris is the face of the tournament from now on. He doesn't need me. So every year, people came back and see my development. How wonderful. So Tom Poston, Peter Marshall, all these people. I love James them. James Hampton's uh, Peter Marshall uh, wrote a beautiful forward for you, as did. did Carol Burnett. And um, I owe mm, very. I owe those two more than I can say. I can. I owe both those people more than I can say. Not just on a on a professional level of who they are to me as people. You remember Carol Burnett had surgery in her job. Yes, I do. She was always self conscious of it. Right. Well, I had the exact same surgery, except that I had a more of an overbite than she did. Mm-hmm. And she, one night, we went out for dinner with my dad, and she talked me through the whole process. She didn't have to share that process with me. It was grueling. It was emotionally draining. And she sat there and said, this is what's going to happen. This is the procedure. And she proceeded to make me feel more comfortable. But didn't you want to bark, too? <laughs> like, 
like, oh, my oh, God. Well, <laughs> Thanks for telling well, me, but... Ah! <laughs> yeah, well, when you, she said... She tells me the part where you have your mouth wired shut for a month. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, uh, my family celebrated that in itself. <laughs> uh, they put a sign on my living room door. If you're enjoying quiet... While Chris is healing, enjoy it now because when Chris gets these things off his mouth, he won't stop talking. <laughs> so enjoy the enjoy the quiet. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have I love I I, deep, I mean I, I'm very good friends with Peter Marshall and his wife Laurie, and I still talk to them today. And how is Peter Marshall doing? You. you guys, if you're not well, sure of it, he was a host of Hollywood Squares forever. He was one of your dad's yeah. best friends, right? Along was, with yes, and I. McLean Stevenson oh God, was also yes. one of your father's yes, best friends. Very, very, very dear. And and to, today, I again, every time I go out to LA, Lauren Peter said, "You got to come up. You got to come up and visit." So I went up. God, uh, let's see, uh, probably 2013 or 14. I went up to the house with my friend Ed Robertson, who is a, a radio personality. Himself, and we went up there uh-huh. for lunch. I didn't know what to expect because I didn't see Peter and Lori. And I, and I don't ever like, I hate, I feel like I'm infringing on anybody yeah, or bothering anybody. And Peter's like, No, Chris, your family to us. I've known you since you were five. And so, even Peter and Lori is like being with family. So, here's the that no one's ever, I don't think anyone ever know, knew this. In 82, my dad was asked, tour in the national and he was about to have his third child and so he couldn't really commit to it so he told the producers you should find somebody who's a much better voice than I do you should have Peter Marshall do the um, not the George Hearn role George the, the, the lover of uh-huh. um, Al Dan and so I'm, I'm having breakfast and we're still talking and Lori said do you know about your dad passing on LaCarge or Fall I said, yeah, I know. He did. He asked. He told the producers about Peter, and Lois said, that's how we met. I was I went to the show with my girlfriend, and they said you should meet this guy, guy Peter Marshall. And my lawyer's like, father. And like, I don't think Peter wanted to hear that across the room, but I said, this is so strange that that's how they met because my dad passed on Lacasha Fall. That's and funny. I so didn't singing, know Peter, yeah. Peter Marshall did La Caja Fall. He has one of the greatest singing voices you'll ever hear, ever, period. Hmm. He started off as a big band singer. He did Broadway. He did he did Bye Bye Birdie. You did Bye Bye Rivera Birdie. In London. <laughs> in London. Yes. He is one of the most incredibly talented, versatile people you could ever meet. The people don't think of him. They think of Hollywood Squares. The congenial host. Really know Peter, yeah. The congenial host. But people who really know Peter know that he started as a big band singer. He was a, he was a uh, comic with two guys, Tommy Farrell and Ta- Peter Noonan, or Todd Noonan. <laughs> I mean, you talk about a Renaissance person. There's nothing Peter can do. So, but we're, we're talking my friend Ed and Peter and Lori, and Lori said, can I fix you guys breakfast? I said, sure. I said, oh, um, have you, I said, have you talked to Artie Johnson a long time? He's like, he's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I said, yeah, I know, it's really bad. And Lori said, well, please send him my love. 
And I said, all right. And, and Lori said, I said, well, how do you, how do you, well, do you know Artie? He said, well, Lori, Artie is my distant cousin from my dad's side of the family. Nobody knew this. Most people don't know Artie Johnson's a distant cousin. Is Artie Johnson? Uh, He's so, not alive, though, is he? No, he died, God, five months ago, six months ago. Oh, wow. And you know, they uh, didn't even... Non-Hodgkin's. They didn't really put it in the yeah. paper. That's sad, because he was great. That is sad. He was He was good. very dear. He, Artie, Artie and my father actually won an Emmy in uh, the same year, 1968. I said, Dad, you, you and Artie beat out, uh, what was it, Wild Kingdom? <laughs> And Marlon Parkins, Tim Conway. So you beat out a moose. You beat out a moose, and you beat out Conway. What's what's more more? What what's more that? humiliating? You see, I said, so if you had lost, I, I said, Dad, if you had lost, you would have lost out to a moose and Conway. Could you could you live that down? But what category were they in that Marlon Perkins would have been in that category? Was, as well, that's so at that weird. time it was a catch-all, Grace. It was a considered variety documentary <laughs> or special. So I said, Dad, you lost out to a you might have lost out to a moose or Conway. I don't know what, which one would have been more debilitating to your career. <laughs> so he won it for Carol Burnett. He won for Carol Burnett and already went to laughing. Let's and I emailed Leonard Moulton, and I, let, and I emailed a couple of people and said, in the history of show business, has two people who have been directly or indirectly related ever won an Emmy the same year? And Leonard uh, said, oh, Thomas O'Reilly, who wrote the Emmy book, said, what are you talking about? He said, you know, Artie and my dad were related, right, Art, Thomas? I said, your dad and Artie were related? I said, I didn't know that when I wrote it. I said, yeah, there's a picture of them holding their enemies together. I said, oh, my God. If I ever update that, Chris, I'll let you know. So, yeah, so that was – my dad won four. All uh, for Carol Burnett? Golden Globe. All for yes, Carol. he has a Golden Globe, which, yes, uh-huh. which I own. He oh, dedicated nice. his Golden Globe to me. He said, he's the greatest son in the world, love dad. Aww. So, and he's in the Hall of Fame, the TV Academy Hall of Fame. He should be. He was inducted in 2002. Well, I always said, Dad, if you're going to be inducted into an institution outside of Bellevue, <laughs> TV is the right place for you. I said, yeah, I had to take Conway, Bob Mackey, John Frankenhammer, and Gene Stapleton with me. But, you know, I'm always attached with this Conway guy. But <laughs> yeah. I told my dad, I could not have been more proud of him. I said, yeah, Chris, do you ever think a snow from Chicago would ever make it this big? I said, yeah, Dad, you're really talented. When are you ever going to get that? See, Grace, most people don't know. My dad had very little self-worth. I know. I he got that thought, in the book. Mm-hmm. I got that so much it's, from the book, Chris, uh, and it broke my heart because he's so wonderful. He was so wonderful. He is. So talented. Uh, you had to tell him enough. What about the yeah. Burt, Burt Lancaster story? I love that one. Oh, okay. So we're, we're in Hawaii. It's my 18th birthday. We're having breakfast. Now, I'm facing the breakfast area. My dad's back is turned. So I see who's coming towards us, right? Mm-hmm. So Burt's walking towards us. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Now, I got eggs in my mouth, so I'm chewing really quickly. I said, Dad, <laughs> Burt Lancaster. Like, like, my dad's like, why are you talking with clenched teeth? I said, Bert Lancaster is walking towards you. <laughs> I said, why? <laughs> I don't know. Why didn't you ask him? So I said, so 
Bert says, uh, he leans his head in. He says, Herbie. And Bert, my dad turns his head and says, Bert? I said, yes. I said, I know where um, we got shotgun in an hour. So I'm going to sit here and have breakfast with you and your son. My dad and I looked stupefied. We didn't know what to say. We know we had eggs in our mouth, and we weren't going to talk. We just going to chew really quickly. And Bert, so I moved over. Bert sat on the other side. I mean, now we're staring at each other. Nothing is being said for 20 seconds. Yeah, because you said none of Bert was scarving down his food. He was just shoving it. And my dad, and my dad is staring at him like, why is Bert Lancaster sitting with me? I said, they ran out of people to talk. he ran out of people to talk to? I don't know, Dad. Why don't you ask him? So he said, um, Bert, I'm really kind of curious as to why you sat with me. Oh, my wife and I have been watching you for years. We love you on the Burnett Show. That was it. My father, my dad was Daffy Duck for the rest of the, he, he couldn't talk. <laughs> he couldn't grasp that someone like Burt Lancaster or Cary Grant. Cary Grant loved and, him. They all loved oh him. Oh, God. These guys oh my God. You, could act. Your father could act as well. We were talking my about that was, horrible. He was a Shakespearean trained yeah. actor, you said. Yes, he was. He went to Goodman Theater. He studied with Uta Hagen. Mm-hmm. He studied with the Herbert Burgoff. I said, you have so much training. You, you have an existential crisis just saying good morning. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, he got training. But, you know, when Cary Grant comes up to you, now, the night that, uh, was it, Lawrence Olivia was in the audience, and no one knew. And they told my father, and my dad just felt lost because my, my, that was who my dad's idol was, Lawrence Olivier. And in 59, he done a play, uh, fellow in Santa Monica. And Charles Lawton, Betty Davis, came backstage and said, you're going to be next to Olivier. Wow, heavy, and heavy And my dad duty. never forgot that. Yeah, and he said, Chris, I came out to L.A. with your mother. In 60, I thought I was going to be the next Olivier. And all I could offer room was, all, all I could do is offer them was an aging, balding Jew. That's such a shame. But you know what? Yeah. It, that wasn't his lot in life. And I know no. so many comics put themselves down and not think, let me tell you, we cry at the same thing, but laughter? No. We all have different senses of humor. That show right. and your father brought generations together, parents, kids, little kids who probably didn't even get half the stuff that was going on, would crack up. He brought a lot. He was fabulous. He was a wonderful entertainer. He, he, I adore he him. And you can see him, like you said, on YouTube. And I believe they also have um, some Carol Burnett's on um, Amazon oh, Prime. Yes. And you guys yes, have to check um, out. Yeah. A lot of the things, since this is a classic movie podcast, check it out just for the spoofs Carol did on the old movies. Oh, God. You know, when Harvey, what was oh, he? Well, uh, Rat, Rat Butler. Uh, Rat Butler, <laughs> yes. That was a classic. I mean, the whole week, Carol and my dad had no clue what they were going to do with the character. And not until they got into the costume of the brilliant Bob Mackey. And Carol, <laughs> half the time, half the time my father and Carol never knew who they were going to play. So Bob designed the costume for them. And Carol and my dad got into that costume and all of a sudden they were Scarlet and Red Butler. And it just, the writing by Rick Hawkins and Liz Sage was sublimely brilliant. I mean, they hit every joke possible. And, and Mickey Williams was great as Chrissy. 
And Dinosaur was great as Marion. They were fabulous. And, and she, her wearing the curtain. Horrible. Who can ever forget that? Yeah. She taking the curtain out, and that's it, her dress. That's <laughs> so yes. funny. I saw it in the window. I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> um, and it was just, but to have, I mean, uh, many years later, Carol invited my dad and Tim Conway to have lunch with Carrie Grant oh, wow. two or three times. After the third time, my dad had to say to Carrie, it's like nothing, nothing personal, Carrie, but Tim and I are running out of material. So can we come back a month later so we have some new, new fresh stuff for you? Because we're feeling really stupid trying to keep you laughing. Carrie is like, no, Harvey, I just like being with you and Tim. You guys just make me laugh so much. I love you both so much. And my dad couldn't get it. He just could not grasp that someone like Carrie Grant or Lawrence Olivier. So many of the Paul stars. Newman. They said, oh, what? It, oh, my God. What, you met Paul Newman with your father, right? No, no, my I, my dad, uh, Joanne Woodward, had done an episode of The Burnett Show. And Paul Newman, from where the story goes, it was in the booth. And Joanne is doing that, uh, a sketch about uh, the mama characters. And she's best friends with Eunice. And remember, they do two shows a night. Obviously, Paul Newman had never seen a live show done. And he's in the booth, and he's, oh, my God, he's sweating profusely. He says, I don't know. He's saying this to Carol Burnett, husband, Joe Hamilton, and the director. How do you guys do this every week? They're like, what, Paul? How do you do live television every week? I said, well, we make cuts in, in, in the middle of the shows, Paul, but, you know, you know it's live. You know, I could never do this. And everybody in the booth was like, here, Paul Newman, you can do everything. No, that's not true. That's no, a fallacy in this industry. It is a fallacy. We assume... <laughs> We assume everybody can create or perform at everybody else's level. I don't see, I can never see De Niro or Pacino. No. I can never see De Niro or Pacino no. doing sketch comedy. No. But my father can do what they do. Yes, he can. And that's the thing, you know? A lot of times, singers want to be actors, actors want to be singers. Yes. A lot of times, right. dramatic actors, and I've met some, want to do stand-up comedy, and they bomb, bum, 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 and then, uh, or they want to do, like, they think they're funny and they can do some comedy, but it's it's not right. easy. Comedy is hard, and he was just a natural talent, he and Carol, and... Um, I don't think Tim was always on, was he? He was just, he became a character. Later no, he was on. a he was semi he was a sem, he was considered a semi regular because he was on so much. And Vic, they thought he was. And um, Vicky was what? She was only like seventeen when she joined the show, right? Yeah, she went to the Harvard School of Comedy. I tell you, my dad was my dad was my dad was her teacher and mentor, and um, she said, "I don't think there is any finer sketch comedian." actor in this business. I don't either. And, and Carol said the same thing. And Carol said the same thing about my father at the Hall of Fame induction. What about said, Lyle Wagoner? <laughs> yeah. He, Lyle was just... He had his part to well, play the pretty boy whose yeah, teeth glinted yeah. in diamonds. Yeah, he played that but, part. Yeah, but he had a great sense of humor about himself. He didn't take himself so seriously. You liked him a lot. You could laugh and he, he was a wonderful, wonderful, trivial person. Um... But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a special in 81 or 82. It's called Eunice, where Mama dies. Oh, And it's a 90-minute teleplay that my dad directed, Betty White, Carol, Vicky, and Ken Berry playing Philip, which was played by Roddy McDowell on The Burnett Show. 
they had Ken Berry play Philip in this 90-minute teleplay, which was considered the pilot for Mama's family, which is odd because they killed the main character off. Eunice? But, Did they kill Eunice off? Eunice. It's on YouTube. I, I'll send it to you. Thank you. Um, so there's a line. He's, Ed is trying to get Eunice to come over to her place, you know, hanky-panky. And my dad says this line, and I still use it as a reference to my father being so incredibly able to take a straight line and drain seven seconds out of eight seconds of laughter out of a straight line. He says, why don't you come over to my place for a little while? I got a new photograph needle. I said, yeah, how did somebody get a, a, a eight-second laugh on a photograph needle? <laughs> because you emphasized <laughs> photograph needle, and then you made the face that we gave people the impression that a photograph needle is sexy. Yeah, sort of like, why don't you come see my etchings? You know, kind of thing. Right, yeah. right. This, this is 1955. Who would have thought that, you know, a photograph needle is sexy to a woman? I said, Chris, that's the thing. Is you have to understand what you're saying. You have to play the subtext of what you're saying. How ridiculous it is for me to give emphasis to a photograph needle. It's, it's absurd, right? That's the joke. I said, but how did you get eight seconds out of that? I said, what do you mean? I said, how did you get eight seconds of laughter out of that? I said, that's how long the laugh. That's how long the laugh lasted. Eight seconds. I said, how do you know that? I said, I timed it. I said, what do you mean? I said, I time all your laughs. I said, you time them? All of them? You don't have schoolwork to do? You don't have anything else better to do with your day than time my laughs? <laughs> I said, I'm a, I study you. I study everything you do. Most of your laughs, dad, and or goes along as seven and a half, eight seconds, longer than everybody else's. But what's funny is, Chris, in the book, he says... <laughs> That he tells you that people, like you said, like Tim Conway, he got a laugh where it wasn't expected, and then he would step right. on the laugh where your father would right. teach, let the laugh play out and start again. Right. And um, right. that's that he, he was a pro 100%, and that's all I can say. He was. I know how much he loved you. One of the funniest stories, I don't know, maybe I'm morbid. But it was funny, Chris, is that you went home. Your mom was living, I, I don't know if it was with the guy after George, but she was living no, with somebody. with George. With George. And you spent 10 years yeah. there going for the holidays, correct? So you went to see oh, your dad. Okay. And your dad is like, you know, Chris, I don't think I want to you know, live anymore. I don't think I can get through yes. it anymore. And, <laughs> and then you give him this great line, which cracked me up. And cracked him up. I want to say it. Oh uh, well, yeah. Well, we were driving. We were. Yeah, uh, not had, most people don't realize this. My dad. I left LA in '85. I moved back east to go to school, and my dad stayed in California. Mm-hmm. My mom and my stepfather George, who was an actor, <laughs> was living on the East Coast. So all all that time, I had been having all these Christmases on the East Coast with my mom. So. There was a 10 or 12 year gap between Christmases with my father. Yeah. And so my dad, we're driving to Santa Monica, we're going to get coffee. I'm in, I'm in his Alexis. My father had this uncanny ability, and I don't know why. He always had this face, he always had a look on his face where he said, he always, he always seemed like he didn't know where his ball went <laughs> on the golf course. He always had that disgruntled look of, where's my ball? <laughs> so he always had a look of puzzlement everywhere he went. And I finally looked over him and said, 
you look confused or unhappy. I said, I said, I am. I said, why? You don't want to go there? I, said, I think I'm old enough to be last one to talk about you. not happy. I said, I don't, we didn't know, at this time, we didn't know he had a brain tumor in his head. Uh-huh. And he died of aortic aneurysm. But I said to him, you always look like you, you can't find your ball on the golf course. You always have that look of confusion on your face when I'm around you. And I said, why is that? I said, I don't know how much longer I want to live. I took about a 20-second beat. I looked over at him and said, well, Mother, blah, 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 Merry Christmas and Happy blah, blah, New Year to you, too. <laughs> you should write Hallmark sentiments. You wrote, well, he said, Merry oh, effing Christmas oh to you, Dad. And Happy blah, 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 <laughs> New Year. And he, he started laughing so hard, he had to pull to the side of the road. <laughs> and, and I said, you took the wind out of my sails. I said, well. Of all the 13 Christmases I haven't had with you, you decide now <laughs> you. to go gestalt on me, you asshole. You can cut that out if you want. But no, no, I said, no. I've okay. had a Christmas with you in 13 years, and you decide to go rogue on me? What are you, a schmuck? <laughs> what do you call you? He was a this? schmuck. You were the putz, right? Right. He could not help but realize, I mean, there's honesty and there's honesty. And it was and good, and he, you made him laugh. He pulled but, over, and he right. snapped out of it. Right, but he leaned over and gave, gave me a kiss on the cheek and said, thank you, son. I said, what? I said, you put me where I had to be. I, I realized there's honesty and there's honesty. I said, Dad, I understand your neuroses. I understand your fears of failure and all those, because I have them, too. I said, what do you mean? It's like, I feel like I failed you and Mom for years. So we're in the same boat here. I said, you've never failed me or your mother. I said, but I don't know that. Well, like I many said, children. Hey, I, uh, so. I'm, I'm sorry, Chris. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Because no, in, I, in your book, you state, which a lot of children feel, is that um, when their parents divorce, that must have been very difficult for you. And yes. part of the child feels, and it's not just kids with learning disabilities, it's children in general feel right. that they are the cause of their parents' divorce. Yes. And that is so sad yes. because 99.9% of the time, that ain't the case. And you hold that guilt no. with you. So I was so glad that you got that out and told him that. And he was well, able to tell you, uh, no, no, no. No, and I, there's, I mean, there's a lot of perceptions and, and things that you can assume that are in your head that aren't true. And my father and my mother will always have to say, when have we ever, ever asked you to be more than what you can be? I said, no, it's not that you, you articulate that to me, mom and dad. It's like, it's, I think that. You put the pressure on I yourself. Have, yeah. I put the pressure on me because I needed a scapegoat when I failed. And he said... And my dad and my mom just looked at me and said, that's really freaking honest. I said, well, look, I can only measure myself based on what's realistic for me to, to achieve. At, at that point, I didn't know that. I do now at 53. Is I can only go at one pace, and that's my pace. I can only achieve what's realistic Chris Corman, not based on what Maria did or my other siblings did, because I'm not them, and they're not me. You have two siblings? So, I have four. Wow. I have older sister, Heidi, who's married to an actor, Cotter Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, my, I know my dad him. Has yeah. Two, yeah, I have two older, younger sisters, Katie and Laura. 
who live in LA, and my oldest sister Maria, who lives in Baltimore, who's an attorney. So uh, I, I'm the only boy, as far as we know. <laughs> um, yes. So, uh, so, but you were very honest. Um, Your book is fabulous. Um, and I, I just love the relationship. You had a great relationship with your mother, but this was more about your relationship with your father. Now, one thing I have to ask you, um, I know this George. I, I think he was in the Hillside Strangler or something, this guy who was your stepfather. He was in Shelter. Oh, was? Did, oh, he played Vincent Bugliosi. Right, and he was the one that hits Michael J. Fox with the car in Back to the Future. One. I don't remember that one, but I do remember that. And he was a very good actor. But what happened? He was. And he was Did you like him? I loved him. I, I'm very fortunate. He thought he died in 2010. Uh, but he enjoyed, he and my father uh, were in a movie together called Long Shot about horse racing. Oh, cool. And um, my dad actually recommended the casting person to hire George for the role. Which was amazing because... Uh, they liked each other, actually. You had, they adored each other. Your parents and, yeah, had an amicable... Yeah, isn't that wonderful? More than, more, more than amicable. And whatever... Here's the house rules. Uh, whatever punishments that start in my mom's house mm-hmm. transfers to my dad's house and vice versa. There's a boundary line. George never walked that line or, or overstepped it. It was on George and his stepfather. I will expect you to, to adhere to rules that are in my house. And I was, and I respect the fact that your father is the ultimate voice in your life and, and your mother. But you do something in my house that I don't like, you're going to hear about it. I said, well, same goes to you. Is it something that you do that I don't like? I'm going to call you on it. From that moment, we were best friends. And I love you what he, together. Yes. And you know what I love about that too, Chris, whether you did it at the time, he did you a tremendous uh, favor which I'm sure you're like, oh, great, what a favor. You know, he may, he said, you're going to do your own laundry. You're going to do this. Yep. You're going to fold your own clothes. You're going to take responsibility for this stuff because you have to. And he was right. And I'm sure at the time you're like, yep. mean. Who's he to tell me what to do? Oh, well, yeah, but, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, oh, I know. It's, but I thank God he did that because yes. I got into college. And um, Is that thought, when okay, you went to Vermont? Colors and whites. That's I went to yeah, I went to college in Vermont, and <laughs> I like how you describe it. it. I love Vermont, though. I'm from Massachusetts, uh, yeah, was, so I'm very uh, well, close. Well, to I went it. to school in Boston. I did too. Um, I went to. Um, well, if I say this to you, you're going to laugh because people don't realize this. Leslie College, which is in Cambridge, uh-huh. is an all-girl college. Within the all-girl college, the undergraduate program had a program called the Threshold Program. For people with with a young, with, for adults, high functioning adults with learning disabilities, it was a vocational program. It was a two year program with a transitional program at the end. Right. So from eighty nine to ninety two, I lived in Boston. So I'm on the campus, probably an hour and a half to my mom and George to let me off. They got my stuff in the dorm, and I was fine. I was settled in, um, and I was fine. So I called my dad on the payphone in the lobby of uh, downstairs in my dorm. Uh-huh. I called him, and I said, I'm situated, I'm fine. I said, so let me get this straight. You are in a college of 8,000 girls, and you can't get a date? <laughs> Thanks, I Dad. Said, I said, hey, hey, schmuck, I've been here an hour. Give me a break. Really? What are you, you just hanging out with a little black book? I said, you, 
<laughs> right. I said, yeah, I said, Dad, um, you know what really would help if you stopped wearing women's clothing and dressing like a chicken on television. That might help me a lot. Wasn't that the first thing you saw? You, did you go to every taping or almost every taping of your dad's? I, oh, God, see, that's a really good question, Grace. Um, I probably started going in 72, so I went five years. I probably went to 70 or 80. Huh? Um, I, I mean, you know, Maria, my sister Maria and I didn't go every Friday. We went most Fridays. The, uh, we probably you, missed some. You said the first one you saw, your dad was dressed as a chicken, and it freaked you out. He was clucking around like uh, well, a chicken. Yeah, well, that and the time he walked it. There was a Halloween thing, and he walked into his dressing room dressed up like King Kong. No, no, he, dressed, <laughs> he walked into the dressing room. Now, my mom is facing the door, so she sees him. My back is turned. My dad turns around. He's dressed like Frankenstein. At that moment, I needed a card that depends. Because I didn't realize he was behind me. And I turned around and I said, oh, my God. Oh, five? Five or six? Oh, but what a riot he was. Oh, but um, I, I tell you, I think if there's a moment, outside me and Burt Lancaster, uh, after meeting the people I've met, I can say there's one defining moment that really got to understand me. I mean, my, I was good. For, I was very dear to John Ritter and John Ritter was very dear to my father. Um, and my dad directed this special in 1987 with Carl Reiner, Whoopi Goldberg. And oh, great. And great Williams. story in there. Yeah. Yes. And, and I'm, just, I'm with my best friend, Scott Marshall from high school. And we're sitting in the front row to the left, I think. And volumes agent was sitting in front of me. I didn't know who he was. He didn't right. know. And I said, and I said to Scott, I said, Dad was nervous the whole week about working with Robin. I mean, he worked with Robin Williams because he's so improvising. I can't speak. Improvisational stuff. But you know what, Chris? He never did improvise. That was the genius of him. He had things planned out. That's just a true story of Tinseltown scoop. Yeah. That is, and but now, Robin had not worked with my father ever. So, right. I, and and I and I said this out loud, and, and it was rehearsal, and um, actually it was first before the taping, and I said to her, I, like, I can't believe my dad wasn't working with Robin Williams all week. He was scared crapless. He didn't know what to say to him. He didn't know how to engage him. He'd worked with Carol and Carl a lot, so Carol wasn't a fr- Carol. And my dad and Carl got along great, but how do you direct Wildman Williams and Willie Goldberg? You don't want to stifle their creativity. Right. And I sort of got Robin's agent turned around and said, man, you are full of crap. I said, why? Robin was scared shitless to work with your father. I said, what? I said, do you know how, I said, because I don't really, I don't know if you really realize where your father is in the pantheon of comedy people. Your father is up there. And Robin was deathly afraid because your father's home was throwing people in this business. And Robin didn't want to feel like he was upstaging their father's direction or, you know, I said, well, my dad didn't want to stifle Robin's all week. He wanted to let Robin do what he thought was good for the material. And I said, but all week, Robin said, your father and Robin got along great. They respected each other's cachet. Right. They respected each other. There's no ego. And my dad said, "Working, directing Ron Williams is like farting in the tunnel. 
it's completely use, useless. It doesn't mean anything. It, you know, it just because you just you just have to let Robin go. Right. And all the time, you know, all week, you know, Robin it just it was just um, not self serving, but it was like, oh, Harvey, what, what do you think is best? It's like, oh, like, let's do this, let's do it this way, and then the mm-hmm. second taping, we'll do it this way. Let you do it your way. And and Robin had so much respect for the fact that my dad wasn't stuck on his creativity. He went back and forth. But the fact his agent said to me, you have no idea how much reference, reference, reverential respect Robin has for your father. Now, mind you, I'm 20 at the time. Right. My my demographic was Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, John Ritter. See, those who I count as comedy greats. Right. To have Robin Williams' agent say to me, Love and revered your father. It was sort of like what? Mm. So I, it was hard for me to grasp that kind of in of the course. pantheon of comedy. Yeah, but and and I met Rob Williams afterwards. I get it, hundred percent. And he said, "You have to be hard and corny." I said, "Why?" It's like no one else has that nose. That schnoz, yeah. And then Whoopi said, that's "Yeah, schnoz. shut up, you you hairy beast right. or something." Yeah, and, and, yeah, and I'm like, and I'm like, you're a one hairy son of a bitch. And you're talking about my dad's nose. Oh my god, oh my god. But it was, it was just, it was just incredible to me. And I said to him, uh, you know, away from that, I said, like, you know, back in the '70s, you did this thing for share. It was for all the celebrity women had their wives create these variety shows to raise money for this charity. And he said, yeah, how do you know about that? Well, this is pre-Happy Days, I think. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. I said, do you remember a woman named Donna Corman? I said, yeah, she's the one that recommended me for the show. I said, that's my mother. She said, what? I said, You're, my mother recommended you for this thing before you to actually had to really made it. I think this was pre-Happy Days. But you're going to be going all over Hollywood. So you're going to be the next big Hollywood comedy. And my mom had heard that. And she said, you got to get this guy. And my mom took a chance on you when no one else would. And she said, I had no idea. I didn't ever put the correlation together. Your mother recommended me for this benefit. I said, yes. He had no idea. Go, and Carol and Whoopi were standing there, yeah. were staring at me like, we didn't know that story. I'd never told that story. If my mom had never told me until about maybe 10 years after that. Yeah. Or prior to that, I had not known. And Robin just looked at me and said, well, I owe your mom everything. I mean, Jesus. I mean, what? Because your mother obviously has great taste in com- comedy. I said, I know that besides being married to my father, she got over it. <laughs> um, but... Uh, and I said, it was just an honor to meet you. And my, he was with my friend, Scott Record, Scott Marshall, who has cerebral palsy, and he was in a wheelchair. And oh, one of those wheelie things. And he was, hey, Scott, it's nice to meet you. And Robin, it's kind of just looking at each other, like, I can't believe we're talking to Robin Williams. And I said, like, you have no idea what an honor it was to work with your father this whole week, Chris. It was just, it was mind-blowing. You have no idea how much admiration I had for your father. Everyone had like, admiration a- from your father for what he did. He was amazing. All of them, they were a team. And as Carol said, you know, when you're doing a show, the be- you can't be an egomaniac. You have to appreciate and want everybody to do their best. And if somebody gets a laugh, like your dad or someone else, be happy that it's cohesive, that it's funny, right. and you respect it. That's what good shows do. You know, if you have well, these- Betty was like that. 
Jack Benny was like that. Carson was like that. I'm only as good as Doc and Ed's going to be. Carol learned that from Gary Moore. I'm only going to be as good as everybody else with Gary. Right. Gary learned that. And Carol took that from Gary. Mary Tyler Moore was the same way. She was amazing. Betty's better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody on Mary Tyler Moore is better because everybody shared in the lap. Gavin, Betty, Ed, um, whoever. Oh, I've talked to Ed Asner twice. I adore him. Um, Also, uh, you know, Valerie Harper, she was such a beloved character. And she was pretty. I mean... She was supposed to be this really overweight, unattractive woman, right. but Valerie was quite attractive, and she, she was. Yeah, to me, Mary Tyler Moore went downhill when Valerie left, and I didn't like her show as much. But Mary had, and her husband, had the sense to know that everybody should shine. If everybody shines, yeah. then the show works. That's a, and and Doc and Carson learned that. Now here's here's two different. Opposite to that, okay. Danny Kay and Red Skelton mm-hmm. did not like anyone getting big laughs, and Skelton fired my father for oh, getting wow. too many laughs. And Kay did not like Kay. My dad was like uh, all, vinegar and water. My dad and Dan did not get along for the four years they were on the show. It was oil and water. It was because uh, Danny liked Dean Martin. Danny didn't rehearse. So Joyce Van Patten, Dick's sister, Dick Van Patten's sister, and my dad were considered semi-regulars in those four years. Well, my dad really cut his teeth on sketch comedy on Danny Kay. But to, to be fair, I don't think Danny is as funny. As funny. Danny needs other people to be funny. They were not as funny as your father. They didn't have the skill. No. They didn't have the, um, the whole thing. I mean, it was just, I can remember your father. This is so funny. When he played Prince Charming, and he played Prince Charming as, you know, kind of effeminate, and it was hysterical. It's like, oh, God, I I rap. He was so funny. And and I'm just telling everybody, uh, Chris had an amazing dad. Stories of Tinseltown, they're not only good, they're true. 